So every commercial airplane is fitted with what's called an electronic flight data recorder, or we would call it, you guys know what we would call that? The black box, right? Um, And a, a black box does two things. It's like indestructible. It's usually in the back of the plane. And it does two primary things. First, it records, now it records two hours of conversations between pilots and air traffic control on a loop. The second thing it does is it records uh, all in-flight data, computer data, for up to 25 hours. So that in the event of an emergency landing or a crash, the black box is recovered. And you can be seen, okay, what actually went wrong here? Just to give you an example, an example, by the way, that actually has a happy ending. Um, back in 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 left LaGuardia Airport one morning. And uh, just after takeoff, they hit a, um, a flock of geese and completely lost engine power. Some of you are nodding your heads. You remember the story. And uh, they looked around. They had nowhere to land, even though they were really surrounded by a lot of airports. But they were falling fast. And so they decided to land, force land, it's called ditching, in the Hudson River. You guys remember reading about this story? Yeah. And what's so interesting about this is if you were to listen to the black box recording, which, by the way, you can do on YouTube, you would hear um, the voice of the pilot, Chesley Solenberger. And he is in the face of extreme danger, can't make it to any landing strip around, the plane is falling fast, and you can hear him say, we're going into the Hudson. And the air traffic controller's like, say what? He didn't say that, but he tells him other place, another airport, maybe try this one. We're going into the Hudson. And in the face of extreme danger, you hear just calmness in the pilot's voice. He is focused, he's determined, He's committed to the nearly impossible task of landing this plane. It's called ditching a plane in the river. And you know the story. It's been called a miracle on the Hudson. They made a movie about it. He does it successfully. All 150 people survive. You can even go back. They, they list, obviously, they look at the other flight data as well and see that the angle he landed in, the speed he was in, the way he landed that plane, it was, it, it was nearly impossible but he did it. And so the black box is often used to go back and see, okay, what went wrong here? But in this case, for those 150 people that were on board of that plane, that audio recording serves as a reminder of how they were almost miraculously delivered from danger. A reminder of how Chesley Solenberger's focus and skill and calm as a pilot in the face of danger led to them being rescued from death. And that's what Psalm 124 is for us this morning. King David is hitting play on the black box, if you will, to remind God's people of a time when if God had not intervened, God's people would have been completely wiped out. It would have been done for, consumed by danger. But God did intervene on their behalf. He delivered them. 
See, every one of us, we face dangers of various kinds. And if, if we're not careful, what can happen is as we face danger, whether it's physical danger or spiritual danger, we can forget, as God's people are prone to do, that our only hope and our only strength is not in ourselves, but it's in the name of the Lord. So we want to join David in this. We want to hit play on the black box this morning and remember what God has done to deliver us, what God has done to deliver his people. And when we do this, we're not just looking back, but as we look back at God's deliverance, we find help and hope for present and future danger as well. And so as we walk through this psalm, I want to point out three things that David shows us. He points, points out the reality of danger the power of the deliverer, and lastly, in verse 8, the response of the deliverer. The reality of danger, the power of the deliverer, and the response of the deliverer. That's where we're going this morning. And so first, we see the reality of danger. Look at verses 1 and 2. Twice, David says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, repeats himself. Now, our Bibles a lot of times have exclamation points. Um, you may not know this, but the, the Hebrew language did not have exclamation points. That's a modern invention. Write that down. But what, what would often happen is they would use repetition to emphasize something. So that's what David is saying here. He's poetically saying, listen, if God had not intervened on our behalf, this shows that this was serious danger. He's not saying um, we were doing okay, but we needed a little boost so if God had not come in, linked arms with us, and given us a little help, we don't know what would have happened. That's not what he says. He said, if God had not been on our side. Danger was so serious that if God didn't do something, David implies that the entirety of God's people, the entirety of his nation would have been destroyed. Now, we don't know a lot about the historical event that David refers to. It doesn't give us an exact instance. In fact, this is one of the things I love about the Psalms. The psalmists often do this. They don't tell us a specific instance. And I think that's actually helpful because the Psalms are meant for the people of God throughout history to own as our own prayers and own as our own songs. Right? So the Psalms are unique in this way. Listen, every, every passage of Scripture is profitable to be used to prayer pray back to God, but the Psalms are a little different in that it's the only book in Scripture that's explicit purpose is to put songs and prayers into your mouths and hearts. It's a unique book in that way. And so not showing the background keeps us who are uh, at times cynical from saying, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I, I'm, not, I'm not an Israelite from 3,000 years ago. So this can't really help me because I've never been in a situation like that. Well, listen, you may not be, well, you're not an Israelite from 3,000 years ago, but think about what we've talked about the last several weeks. Think about the times you've read the Psalms. Surely you have experienced the fear, the anxiety, the even depression that's expressed in these poems and prayers. These are meant for us to own for ourselves. So don't check out if you say, okay, we're talking about an ancient poem that has nothing to do with me. No, it absolutely, it does. So we don't know the, the, the exact uh, historical context here, but he does give us some details. Look at verse 2. 
The second half of verse 2. He says, uh, we would have been destroyed. When people rose up against us. So we know that there's people involved. This refers to the surrounding nations of Israel. All you have to do is go back and read the Old Testament, and you'll see that Israel was almost constantly faced with threats from surrounding nations and their rulers in two primary ways. Either military threat, we're going to destroy you, we're going to overtake you, or more subtly, uh, this nation is next door, and you guys should adopt our spiritual practices. You should mix them with the way you worship God. So they were, they were constantly faced with this oppression, military and war, but also spiritual opposition as well, being tempted to embrace the practices of surrounding nations. Verse 3 tells us that these enemies were powerful. It says, then they would have swallowed us up alive. This gives the idea of this kind of destruction would have been quick. At one moment, the nation is, of God is here, and at the next, they're gone. This may be a reference to a Canaanite god uh, named Mot. He's, uh, the god of, he was the god of death, and it was said that his upper lip stretched up into the heavens, and his bottom lip was on the earth, and he would swallow and devour anything in his path. These are powerful enemies. Great power and quick destruction. Verse Second half of verse 3 says they're angry. Their anger was kindled against us. They hated God's people. They wanted nothing less than complete and total destruction. This is what the poetic language of verse 4 and 5 tell us. This is a favorite sort of imagery of Hebrew poetry. He tells us like a raging ocean, the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Now surely... A Hebrew would have heard that and thought of God's miraculous deliverance in the Exodus. Maybe you've heard that story when God's people are enslaved in Egypt and God sends 10 plagues to a stubborn, hard-hearted Pharaoh who refuses to let God's people go. Eventually, he does, and they're, they're, uh, they're fleeing Egypt, and Pharaoh changes his mind, decides to get his army and pursue God's people up to the Red Sea. And God's people are standing on the banks of the Red Sea, and before them is an ocean they cannot cross, and behind them is an enemy they cannot defeat. They're helpless and hopeless. They have no weapons, and they're thinking, this is it. This is where the nation is done. We're done for. And what does God do? Through Moses, stretches out his hand. God miraculously parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. And Egypt decides we're going to pursue. What does God do? Closes the sea on them, and in an instant destroys his enemies. God's people knew the reality of danger. It's all over Israelite history. The odds were constantly stacked against them. Enemies on every side. And listen, we, we know the reality of danger as well. If we, if we fast forward to the New Testament, we're, we're told that we too have an enemy, and we're told who this enemy is. An enemy who seeks to destroy us. These are the words of Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, 12. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded and watchful. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who to devour. That's our enemy. Our enemy is our adversary, Satan. He's seeking to destroy us in many ways. Sometimes it's through blatant persecution or injustice, as Pastor Jeremy talked about last week, opposition to the Christian faith, as many brothers and sisters around the world experience. We may one day experience that. This week we're celebrating the 4th of July, and one of the things that we should be thankful for, that we should pray for revival and healing in our nation, we should also be thankful that what we're doing right now, we do freely. None of you were worried that someone was going to put you in jail or threaten your life because you're here this morning. Many parts of the world, that's how the enemy seeks to destroy. But for most of us, I would guess it's a more subtle danger. And because it's more subtle, I think it's even more dangerous. It's a more subtle attack of the enemy that C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I think that's a a fair and accurate depiction about how the devil often, our enemy, seeks to tempt us. In other words, Satan's totally okay with you and I living a morally upstanding life, maybe even mixing a little religion in here and there, being nice to people, as long as we're not fully sold out and committed to following Jesus. Why would Satan have to persecute us if we're just taking this comfortable road to hell? Prowling around like a lion. He's cunning. He's a deceiver. He's aiming to sever our root of faith in God. And I believe for us as American people who are engaging in the Christian faith, whether you're a Christian or not, you're here this morning, I think that's the most dangerous way the enemy attacks us. But that's not all. Satan uses all sorts of different ways. He uses sickness. He uses death. He uses broken relationships, injustice. All of these are the devastating effects of living in a broken and fallen world that's affected by sin. And what Satan wants to do is he wants to take those and use them to sever your root of faith in God. So he Ephesians 6 uses the language, he shoots those things at us like arrows, the flaming darts of the evil one. And so he would have us look at things like sickness in our family, death of a loved one, brokenness. As I was writing this section of the sermon, I got a notification on my phone on Thursday about another shooting in the D.C. area. Injustice, our own sin. The enemy would have us look at all those things and and say, you know what? Because of that, God's not real. If he's real, he's not powerful. If he's powerful, he's not good. That's what the enemy is aiming for. That's the real danger for us. And listen, if that's you this morning, I understand. I have been there. But let me submit to you, let Psalm 124 submit to you, that that's not the only option. That's not the only conclusion to take from those situations of danger, whether past or present or future. If we're not careful, we can look at those situations 
And we can get anxious and discouraged and even cynical towards God. But do you realize that, do you notice that's not what David does at all here? In fact, what he does is the complete opposite. He looks back and he lets the danger point him to the deliverer. And that leads us to our second observation. Number one, the reality of danger. Number two, the power of the deliverer. Go back at verse one. He looks back on this terrifying time and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't wallow. And by the way, David knew every danger. That guy's life was a wreck in a lot of ways. He, he knew what it was like for friends to turn on him and try to kill him. He knew what it was like to, to have family uh, discord. He knew what it was like to have nations waging war against him. He understood depression. He understood all of those dangers. But he doesn't look back and say, hey, remember how terrible that was? Instead, what does he say? He says, look, guys, the Lord was on our side. Like, hey, we're still here. We made it through. You could say that David is a, a glass half full kind of guy. Some of you are like that. You're like the optimist, right? I am not like that. Glass half empty, right? In, in fact, to tell you a story, a little confession time. A few weeks ago, uh, we had some pretty major and unexpected car repair needs come up, as most car repair needs are, right? And, uh, oh man, it was, we, we had to get it done. Um, and, but what's crazy is the same day, God came through, through a loved one, and provided so that we would only have to pay a fraction of what we thought we were going to have to pay to get the car repaired. So we got the car repaired. Praise God, his provision. I'm, I'm serious. Two days later, Lauren and I are talking about this, and, and I start complaining about the fraction we had to pay. You've done it too. Don't, don't laugh, right? All right? And I'm like, man, it's unexpected. It was, you know, this still, I know it's not as much money. It's still a lot of money, you know. And my lovely, wonderful wife gently said, yeah, but God miraculously provided for us in this way. And immediately it was like, thank God for, for wives who, you know, bring the conviction of the Holy Spirit in loving ways. It was like a cut to the heart. I'm like, man. What was I doing? I was looking at this perceived financial danger and dwelling on it so much so that I completely missed the fact that God miraculously came through. God provided and he delivered. That's a small example, but friends, I'm sure you could tell a story like that in your life. Or maybe you haven't looked back yet and seen it that way. And Psalm 124 is encouraging you to do that. Look what he says in verse 6. Blessed be the Lord. That's his response. Not grumbling, not complaining. He praises God for his deliverance. And this isn't mere optimism. I don't want to give the impression that David's like a sort of self-help guru who says just put a smile on and fake it till you make it. He's certainly not that. This is praise that is rooted in an understanding of who God is and what he has done. We see who God is as he goes on to poetically describe in more detail how he delivered. He shows us that God is sovereign over our dangerous circumstances. Look at the second part of verse 6. This God who has not given us as prey to their teeth. He moves to a different metaphor here. Verses 5 is water. Now he, he gives us the idea of a, a creature with sharp teeth. He was, he was a shepherd. 
He understood what it was like for wolves and bears to attack sheep. And he gives this imagery of like that was the people of God caught in the mouth, almost caught in the mouth of this beast, about to be destroyed. But, but guess what? The beast doesn't decide when the sheep is devoured. The enemy doesn't decide what happens to God's people. God is the one who decides. And God decided, verse 6, not to give them up as prey. See what this implies? David knows that total control is in the hand of God. Psalm 19, 21 puts it this way. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God's people have many enemies, but, but his purpose stands above those things. He's sovereign over our dangerous circumstances. Danger, the danger that you and I face does not catch God off guard. You may feel like you're in that plane and it's about to take a nosedive into the Hudson River. It's all over. And where is God? A lot of times we ask that question, understandably. According to God's word, God's in the pilot seat. He's steering that perfectly according to his sovereign plan and his good purposes for your life. If you haven't, I would encourage you to commit this verse to memory. It'll strengthen your faith. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, insert dangers, work together for the good, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's our deliverer. Sovereign powerful, more sovereign than our enemies, more powerful than our enemies. And he powerfully delivers weak people. Look at verse 7. He says, we've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. You see, in order to fall into a, a trap or a snare, you've got to be deceived. That's how traps work. And that is a, a, a apt description of God's people. Easily deceived, easily led astray. You see, in many situations, the danger that God's people found them in was for their own mistakes. It wasn't something that happened just outside of them. It's because they failed to follow God as he intended. They would worship false gods. They would neglect to love God or love one another. And judgment would come. And is this, is this not a picture of us? We're like these weak creatures who've believed the lies of sin. Oftentimes, the danger we face is not because of us. It's just the effects of living in this fallen world. But many times, we've gotten ourselves into that mess. And here's why I'm so thankful for verse 7. Because without it, we might try to say, well, surely God doesn't come to my rescue. I got myself into this mess. I've got to get myself out. Right? After all, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? By the way, no, it doesn't. It doesn't say that at all. The Bible says, hey, you're like this weak little bird trapped in a cage. And if God didn't intervene, you'd be done for. You're helpless without him. So if that's you and you're saying, does God really deliver me to in this situation that I've gotten myself in? The answer is yes. I'll draw your attention back to the first Psalm of Ascent, the first verse that Clint preached a few weeks ago. Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord. And he what? Answered. 
Your distress and the cause of your distress and danger may vary, but the Lord who answers the call never changes. Never changes. That's us. We're these weak and fragile creatures, easily led astray, but God is the powerful and sovereign deliverer. How do we know this? All you have to do is go back and look at Israel's history. Where, where are ancient Israel's enemies now? Where's the Canaanite god of death, Mot, now? You had no idea who he was before this morning, and I didn't know who he was before Wednesday. <laughs> Mot is nowhere to be found. What about the other enemy kings in the Old Testament? Where's Cyrus, Darius, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh? They're gone. They're, they're dead. Fast forward to the New Testament. Where's Caesar? Where's Herod? Where's Annas and Caiaphas who condemned Jesus to death? Where's Pilate who sent him to the cross? Where's Nero who tried to stomp out Christianity by killing every Christian that came in sight? Where's the Roman Empire? Gone. And where are we? Worshiping Jesus in Waltham, Massachusetts on July 1st, 2018. Right? History gives an account that God is victorious over his enemies. What about Satan, sin, and death? Let me just read what what the promises of the New Testament tell us. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus became one of us, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Yes, Jesus came to take away our sins, as we've confessed already this morning. Yes, Jesus came to make us right with God. But we often forget that Jesus also came to defeat death in hell and Satan himself. He has no victory over us. What about sin and the wrath that we deserve? Colossians 2, 13 says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcised, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How did he do that? Paul says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All the sins that you think keep you from God. All those dangerous temptations. Paul tells us, friend, if you're in Christ, that record has been written down and nailed to the cross And you don't bear it anymore. Death itself, a verse that I'm sure you've heard before. Where is death for us? John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, die, but have eternal life. This life will end, but if you're in Christ, eternity will continue on. Here's what this means. For those who turn from their pursuit of sin and trust in Christ and believe the gospel, the greatest dangers, separation from God, judgment for our sin, being enslaved by sin, are replaced with eternal life. That's something that the dangers of this world can never take away. You see, without Christ, our dangers will lead to our destruction. But in Christ, he has ultimate victory over our dangers because he's defeated them. So don't mishear me. We're not saying, okay, that means, uh, that means we don't face any danger. No. What we're saying is that in the face of our danger, we can have hope because we know that whatever danger we face, 
The greatest danger of separation from God can never be taken away. Do you see how that bolsters us as we face the trials and tribulations of this life? So how do we respond to this? We know danger is real. We, we know, I pray we know, and by the way, I pray if you don't believe that, that you would strongly consider the claims of Christ and that you would know and believe and turn from your sins and trust in Christ as your deliverer. So how do we respond? Number three, last verse, the response of the delivered. Or to respond the way David responds, a declaration of praise. Verse eight. I love how our translators sort of put a little space there. Verse 8 is kind of lonely down there by itself, at least in my Bible. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Nothing new here. We've seen it already in the series. But David is looking at all this and saying, listen, we face real danger, powerful danger, but we have a God who is far more powerful and has graciously delivered us time and time and time again. We praise his name. Our help is in him alone. He's the maker of heaven and earth. This phrase, the name of the Lord, shows us that God's revealed himself to us. We we know God's first name. He's spoken. He's told us. He's come to rescue us. If you know someone on a first name basis, right? It's a close relationship. We don't have to wonder Where he is, we don't have to wonder what he requires of us. We have him, we have his word. His name is the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus. He's not a distant God. And this this Lord made heaven and earth. It's as if David is putting all the created things that cause our dangers on one end of an old way scale. You guys, the balance scales. And he's putting God, who is the creator of heaven and earth, on the other end. And he's saying, hey, listen, who wins here? Your dangers from living in this created world or the creator who owns them all, right? You see, the weight, the weightiness of our creator God far outweighs all the dangers of creation. It's meant to encourage us. So David's calling us to look past, look back in the past to this deliverance that we see ultimately at the cross and to know that God is on our side. God did deliver us, he still delivers us, and he will deliver us. God did help us, he still helps us in the midst of danger, and he will help us in the midst of danger. And he'll do that until the future day is coming when all of the dangers of this world, Satan's sin and death, will be completely done away with. There'll be no more danger for us to face. And so I want to just close by reading you a passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced the Apostle Paul had this in mind, had Psalm 124 in mind when he wrote these words. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God for that truth. Let's pray together.